0: Hey there, it's the Planet Football
2: Podcast. Grant Wall here with Luis Miguel Echegaray. How are you, my friend? I'm good, my friend. I'm good. A very surprising evening in the Champions League.
0: Yeah, Liverpool, defending champion, is out. Atletico Madrid pulls it off at Anfield. Crazy game where we go into extra time all square and then madness ensues. And this will always be remembered for Adrian becoming the second Liverpool goalkeeper in three years to be directly at fault in Liverpool, going out in Champions League two years ago. It was Loris Karius in the Champions League final. Here it's Adrian uh, setting up, causing with his terrible clearance at Lady to get the goal that puts them ahead in extra time after Roberto Firmino had scored to put Liverpool ahead. You thought Liverpool was going to, Advance when Firmino scored and instead the floodgates open two more go in for Atletico Madrid. And what do you make of the whole thing?
2: Yeah, no, well put. I mean, a classic smash and grab, I thought, right? It was definitely one that we didn't see coming, especially as Liverpool really turned it up in the second half. You thought that with the home crowd behind them, with the offensive juggernaut that was coming from Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, I thought Jordan and Henderson finally was really just evident on how much he was needed after being injured for a while. Um You thought just this was Liverpool's to take, and, you know, especially after they went ahead, but this was just classic smash and grab. As you mentioned, Adrián was at fault uh, for the opening goal for Atletico Madrid, their first goal. But really, to be honest with you, Grant, it was also about just being super. Simeone in a well, right? Like, never, right. never say never. Just, just, just keep plugging away. You know, I mean, Simeone definitely went into this game just like he went into the first one, saying to his team, listen, we're not going to, if we individually try and match them uh, from a talent perspective, from an offensive perspective, just, We have to be realistic. I don't think we're going to win this one. So we just have to do what we can do when we don't have the ball. And as much as at fault as Adrian was, O'Black was incredible. Um, He just was so commanding in every sense of the word, and really just controlled as much as he could, especially from dead ball situations. And the other person that really deserves credit, I thought, is Thomas Partey in the middle for Atletico Madrid. I thought he had a really good game, especially in defensive transition. So, you know, yes, Adrian was really at fault for the first one, and we really are in shock in many ways. But, you know, Llorentes, uh, you know, came in and, and did the business. But really, this was about... Atletico Madrid just stealing this win thanks to the players that uh, Simeone realized the most.
0: Yeah, it, it's an interesting way to look at Atletico advancing here. I don't think this was a fluke. They got an early goal in the first game and basically shut up shop. That's very Simeone. The second game, uh, in the end, they did what it took and they weren't necessarily the better team on the night in terms of attacking, but they, they still defended. And Oblak, as you mentioned, was very, very solid in this game, despite Liverpool spending a lot of time in the Atletico half. And I think, in many ways, this is a, a classic Simeone performance, a classic Simeone team. They're not having a good season in La Liga at all. No. And yet, uh, you and I had talked about this heading into it. We felt like Liverpool would score the goals it would need. They didn't. Finish all their chances that they created. Uh, it still seemed like it would be enough when Firmino scored. I still think it's a bit of a, a strange rule that the away goals rule still counts in extra time.
2: Yes, very weird. You know,
0: because <laughs> that certainly impacted things once Marcos Llorente got his first goal, because at that point, Liverpool needed to score. And so they certainly left themselves open at the back. The goals that ended up coming for Atletico. And So much of the Champions League knockout rounds is about current form. And really, with the first leg of this Champions League tie against Atletico Madrid, that was when Liverpool's bad run of form started and obviously continues now. And you can be the best team in Europe, as Liverpool has been, all season long, and it hasn't even been close. And if you're not performing when it really counts, this can happen.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. In many ways, actually, you know, when you when you put together the first and second leg, I thought Simeone was kind of um, Greg Popovich in a way. It was very NBA-ish. I think he saw like each half of both games as just specific obstacles to just climb over. Right. Like he had he knew, um, especially in this game, like the first half was was uh, uh, Atletico wanted to silence Liverpool as much as possible, not necessarily with skill and talent, but just to neutralize. And then the second half, he knew that Klopp's Liverpool was looking for that for that win, and he just had to hold on. And I thought it was very sort of smart to do the ugly things correctly. And at the end of the day, Atletico Madrid is through, and Liverpool isn't.
0: Yeah. Uh, Also, today, PSG with some uncharacteristic grit, I thought, in an empty home stadium in Paris gets a 2 0 win against Dortmund, advances to the quarterfinals on a 3 2 aggregate. Neymar, I thought, had a terrific game here, and not the typical kind of Neymar game. This wasn't a flashy game for him, but it was a grit game where he showed his toughness in a way that we haven't always seen, uh, scored the first goal. was involved, wanted to be a part of this, and PSG ends up advancing against a Dortmund team that I can't believe they didn't score a goal here. We were talking heading into this tie about you know an over/under of 18 goals total. It ended up being 3-2. Have people started to figure out Erling Haaland?
2: Yeah, and I think it says a lot on how uh, Thomas Tuchel like organized PSG for this specific leg. I think you said it perfectly. I think uncharacteristic grit is pretty much the way that you saw PSG today and I agree with you I think Neymar was really good he You know, I don't know if it was like a blessing in disguise to have an empty stadium, but all he cared about was just working for that team and and focusing on direct play, especially when he didn't have the ball and just playing his teammates uh, in good positions. And I think it worked. Listen, for so many years, you know, this is the first time now that PSG is making it to the quarterfinals since Mbappe and Neymar have arrived. We have talked about... You know, it's just all flash and no substance. And this performance tonight proves that, you know, PSG can get it together. I mean, this was a team that didn't start with Mbappé in the game. Um, right. You know, it, it had a really a sort of unorthodox type of uh, formation where you had like Neymar and Cavani with Sarabia and Di Maria behind them and then Paredes and Idrissa Gueye. Behind them, so really, it was a, it was about just making sure, to your point, to making sure that Borussia Dortmund didn't score. And the moment Haaland was even close to the ball, you know, like bees, you know, to honey, were just like going around the striker in order to, uh, you know, making sure that he didn't do what he usually does. And you have to give PSG all the credit in the world, uh, especially, uh, you know, back to Neymar and just how they performed.
0: Yeah, very impressive. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the quarterfinals or the round of 16 games from yesterday Tuesday. Uh, RB Leipzig advances easily against Tottenham Hotspur, which continues to look like a shadow of its former self. The team Spurs that made last year's final, uh, beaten three to nothing in Germany by Leipzig for nothing on the aggregate. Uh, is there much to say about this except just Leipzig tore him apart?
2: Yeah, not pretty much. Everything that we've been talking about for so long, you know, this is a Tottenham site that's really just uh, devoid of ideas, devoid of creativity, Mourinho running out of excuses, even just pointing to individually blame players. Um, you know, you can talk all about Deli Ali, Lucas Moura, Lamela not doing enough, uh, Harry Kane being missing and stuff, but we're talking about... You know, a Bundesliga team that's not a champion yet, right? Uh, No matter how much money has been added into it. And I thought they were great, especially Angelinho. I was really impressed with him. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there's nothing more to say about the fact that the the better team won, uh, both from a tactical and overall uh, statistical perspective. So the other three
0: quarter finalists now, Atletico Madrid, PSG, RB Leipzig, and then... Atalanta. Love it. The little team that could from Italy beating Valencia 4 3 on the day, 8 4 on aggregate. Ilicic with four goals in this game. And it's the best story in European soccer.
2: Yep. And we've talked about it for so long. You know, we know, you know, a lot of us now know the Atalanta story. Uh, Like you said, the little train that could. I mean, this is just a great, great team that just doesn't care who you are. And once again, Tuesday night was another example. This is a team that it was heavily ahead heading into this. You could have easily parked the bus or at least be conventional, especially when you're again playing in an empty stadium away from home. But nope, Atalanta just wants to keep scoring. Granted, it's not defensively going to be the smartest team. It's always going to concede. Uh, you know, this game obviously conceded three, but they don't care. They're going to score from each angle, and by the end of it, they scored seven goals in aggregate, and they are just such a joy to watch, and I'm so excited to see, uh, you know, what they do in the quarterfinals.
0: So we have half of the eight quarterfinalists in the field. Gotta love the knockout rounds of UEFA Champions League. I think the group stage is a little bit boring, but the knockout rounds make up for it. It seems like every season. And now we have more games coming next week, I think, but I don't know because uh, coronavirus is taking over Europe and elsewhere. And I'm very curious to see what happens with these games next week. Uh, Will they take place at all? Will they take place in empty stadiums? Uh, Our interview coming up here is actually me interviewing my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, who's an infectious disease expert about coronavirus and how it's impacting the sports world. So I think you'll want to hear that interview, but always good to talk about Champions League and soccer with you, my friend. You too, buddy.
2: We'll talk each other again next week.
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Our guest
0: today is my wife. Dr. Celine Gounder is an internist, infectious disease specialist, and epidemiologist. She co-hosts the podcast Epidemic on the Coronavirus with former U.S. Ebola czar Ron Klain and you can see her on TV lately on channels like CNN. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, I never thought that you would come on my soccer podcast. The fact is you don't have any interest in sports. Uh, our friends find a lot of humor in that. Uh, obviously, we connect in a lot of other <laughs> areas. Um, but your history is something I'm very proud of. Uh, you know, For many years, you've done Tuberculosis and HIV work in sub-saharan Africa and in US cities You've also done work on Native American reservations around the US In early 2015 you spent two months in Guinea in West Africa as an Ebola aid worker Why did you want to get into infectious disease?
3: Well, I think it probably started around the time you and I met in college uh, Which was sort of midpoint in college for me Um you know, I, I have always been sort of a science math kind of person, and it made sense um, to leverage that in, in service, uh, in public service for social good uh, through public health and medicine. And I think what really turned me on to infectious diseases, um, you know, I read Paul Dr. Paul Farmer's Aids and Accusation uh, back in college. I read Lori Garrett's The Coming Plague back in college. And I think those kinds of readings um, were really formative uh, in terms of understanding that infectious diseases are very much um, social, societal diseases. They're diseases of the poor, the marginalized, and so it it made sense to me if I wanted to do something in service that that was a problem or a set of problems that I wanted to tackle. And you know, and to be fair, there is something kind of exciting and um you know about the science of infectious diseases and that made it fun too
0: yeah and also because infectious disease is often uh, diseases of the poor this isn't a lucrative gig for you as a doctor um and the service aspect of this not just globally but in the us is something i'm i'm really proud of um we're going to talk about coronavirus here and in a sports context Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday morning uh, March 11th so this is obviously a very changing situation all the time as of right now how concerned are you about coronavirus
3: I am very concerned Um, if you look at what's happening in Italy for example right now and elsewhere in Europe we're probably about a week or two behind them in the US in the US yep and they're healthcare systems are flooded with patients. They're having a really hard time. They are overwhelmed Uh, and I'm really concerned that that's gonna be us in about two weeks time.
0: So there's people out there right now questioning why are we getting so worked up about coronavirus, especially when they compare it to the flu and they say, oh, look how many deaths there are per year from the flu. Look how few deaths we've seen from coronavirus so far. Look how many cases there are of the flu every year. Look how few cases of coronavirus we have right now. What would you say to those folks who say we're totally overreacting right now?
3: Well, so first of all, the flu is not a benign illness. About 50, 60,000 people die from influenza every year. They tend to be the very young, the very old. Um, and it kills by giving you a severe pneumonia in general. And then that's ex- actually exactly how coronavirus also kills. And you can end up on a ventilator quite severely ill. Um, now, we, you know, there's been a lot of obsession over numbers. Um, and one of those numbers is the case fatality rate. So when we talk about case fatality rate, what we're talking about is the percentage of people infected who die. And with the regular seasonal flu, you're talking about 0.1 to 0.2 percent. So if you, as an individual, get the flu, that's about your level of risk of dying. Uh, with coronavirus in the U.S. setting, the best guess estimates are probably in the 0.6 to 0.8 percent range. So likely below 1 percent. So everybody's like, "Oh, well, that's not a big deal, right?" But if you then translate that into raw numbers, you know, let's say it's maybe five. 10 times more deadly than influenza that's a lot of people that's you know 50,000 times five or ten you're talking about what 250 to 500,000 people in a year um, potentially dying from coronavirus that's that's not a small number
0: yeah we just saw today Angela Merkel the German Chancellor say that she thinks 70% of Germans could end up being infected with coronavirus and yet we see here in the US some public officials downplaying it and acting as if 70% is like that that would never happen like where are you on that
3: I mean the be- the best estimates i've seen on that is somewhere in the 40 to 70% range in this first year uh, of transmission and you know and then you may still see well, we probably will see ongoing transmission after that um So, you know, I I do think that this is something that is going to spread across the country in communities uh, in the in the very near future where it hasn't already. Uh, And a lot of people are going to be infected. Now, most of those people, fortunately, will only have mild illness. Um, But for those who do get severely ill, that's going to be a major problem.
0: And. Right now in the soccer world, we're seeing the season postponed in Italy for a month. We're seeing Champions League games in Europe being played in empty stadiums. Is this the appropriate action to be taking place?
3: Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, that is really where we need to be right now. I, I think mass gatherings, whether it's a political rally or a sporting event, um, we really need to be stepping back away from. I think, you know, there, there's a few things to consider with those um, kinds of decisions, one is, is there community spread where the event is going to be located, Um, or are there just still sporadic cases? Uh, And there are still places where we haven't seen cases at all. Like if you go to rural Montana, for example, I don't think we've seen any cases in in some of those areas. So you have to look at where the event's going to be held. You have to look at who is going to be traveling there for, for the event um and then you have to look at also you know is this an indoor or outdoor event um the coronavirus is spread by droplets but those droplets do go through the air that's that doesn't mean the same thing as airborne those mean very different things when we say droplet spread it means it can travel maybe two meters um distance from you uh through the air and then those droplets settle on surfaces so what that means is that if you are coughing on somebody, yeah, you can you can certainly give them coronavirus. Uh, but also importantly, it's those surfaces that the virus lands on. So if you're sitting at your desk, if somebody touches your desk, for example, uh, if you're sitting on the bleachers and and you know you're you're contaminating the bleachers. Um, so you know those are those are some of the things to consider. And at least with an outdoor event, there's a little bit. Lower risk because you do have the you know natural great outdoors, fresh air, which is the best ventilation you can get, um, and then you also have the benefit of sunlight, which to some degree the UV rays do help a little bit with um, reducing the longevity of viruses on surfaces. So you know, and then the final thing I, I think about with these big events is what's what are the demographics of the people attending, and do they skew older? Do they skew maybe sicker? or a lot of them smokers, for example, Um, because then that means that group is also at higher risk for bad consequences of infection.
0: The NCAA basketball tournament is about to start soon uh, around the country, indoor arenas. Um, Do you think they should be playing in empty arenas? Do you think they should cancel it altogether?
1: Mother's Day is around the corner.
3: learn more at marines.com well in terms of the crowd empty arenas for sure um that will definitely reduce the risk and, and that's where the the greatest density of people is but for the players i think that's the other question is how do you protect the players um you know do we need to be screening the players for symptoms do they need to essentially be quarantined as a team and not having contact with people on the outside to make sure that the coronavirus doesn't spread within the team. Um, You know, another thing to take a page from a very different industry, the porn industry, uh, they do regular STD testing and have policies around that. Um, You know, do we need to approach it in in some way like that? Um, So, you know, I think this is something that we've never dealt with before. And so different teams, different leagues are going to do different things and we'll learn from that experience. Uh,
0: we hear this phrase a lot the last few days flattening the curve and i'm wondering if you could explain what that means in terms of social distancing
3: so that's so flattening the curve if you think if you draw the curve of cases so you see the increase in cases and then the peak and then the decrease that's the curve we're talking about uh a really skinny tall curve is uh not what we want we want a flatter curve so that's why we say flattening so what that means essentially is You know for healthcare systems having to see a hundred patients in an hour in an emergency room is a very different proposition than seeing those same hundred patients over the course of a day or a week and so when you have a flood of people coming in it creates a few problems one it's the space. You're crowding more people into the space in a short period of time. Two, it's the staffing. Do you have enough staffing to deal with all those patients? And then you're also going to deal with wait time. So let's say you, you know you don't have the coronavirus. You have a heart attack and you come in. We're going to be slower to respond and take care of you with your heart attack if we're swamped with all these patients. So what we want to do is slow down the transmission. We know it's going to spread. We know that. But what we want to do is slow it down so that the cases occur in a way that we can actually keep up and do so safely.
0: And we keep hearing that a vaccine for coronavirus won't be available for a year to 18 months at the very least. Why is that?
3: So we can't possibly design a vaccine for every single virus known to man. And actually, this one was not known to man before. It was, it's a new one. So um, what we're essentially doing is using um, experimental vaccines that were in development for other things like MERS and SARS and other coronaviruses and adapting those for this one. Now, there's a process involved. You know, you're giving something to a normal, healthy person, so you have to be sure that it's safe and effective. And the safety piece is a big piece of this. So, there's a couple different steps that need to be taken to prove that. Um, and unfortunately, we do have some experimental candidate vaccines to get moving with, which may not have been the case with you know another situation. So. We're starting right now to do phase one clinical trials, which is like with, say, around 50 people, healthy volunteers are given these experimental vaccines um, to see if they have any really bad reactions to them or not. And as long as they seem pretty safe, we move on to a phase two clinical trial where the idea is to continue studying safety, but also to start looking at effectiveness. And one of the ways, you know, you might do that is to measure the immune response to the vaccine. So maybe antibody levels. And then you move from there into phase three clinical trials. And those are even more complicated. So you're talking about even more people, and not just can you measure immune response, but also, in addition, can you actually measure that it's preventing disease, reducing disease in the people who get the vaccine? And the only way you can do that is you give people the vaccine in the context of there being transmission in the community. And then you look at the people who got it and who didn't, and you want to see that there is a lower risk among the people who got the vaccine you know but all of that that takes time there's a lot of logistics involved in that and then there's the ethical piece you know if you have community transmission and you're doing your phase 3 clinical trial who are you giving the vaccine to who are you enrolling how do you prioritize um you know and i think that's going to get sticky especially since probably it's going to be healthcare workers who are prioritized because they do tend to be healthier than, say, the elderly or people with chronic medical conditions. Who, you know, you probably wouldn't want to start do uh, giving an, an experimental vaccine to. So we would probably start with healthcare workers since they're another high risk group. And then you're going to have people saying, "Well, why do healthcare workers get to get this before me?" You know, um, through a study. So it, these are these are complicated, um, ethically challenging situations.
0: Um. I remember before the 2016 Olympics, you actually wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated about Zika because we were starting to see some people calling for those Olympics in 2016 to be canceled because of Zika and I remember that your point was we shouldn't cancel the Olympics. And I'm wondering why you thought that then and how you feel about the Olympics this summer with coronavirus and whether those should go on or Euro 2020, which takes place even sooner all around Europe this time uh, in June.
3: So those are very different infectious diseases. One is a mosquito. Zika is a mosquito-borne infectious disease. So the way you control it has more to do with environmental controls, things like standing water. Uh, you know, do you have um, screens on your windows and and those kinds of things? You know, mosquito control in the community, and that's very different from trying to control something that is spread from person to person through droplets. So as a result because the transmission is different um the dynamics of the disease are different the risks are different and i fear that especially a big international event like the olympics in japan you're basically bringing people from all over the world together mixing them all together you're going to have coronavirus there there is going to be transmission and then you're then sending them back home to sort of amplify transmission back home and To me, that does not sound like a good, you know, a good plan. Um, It's not my decision, and there are, I'm sure, arguments in both directions. But to me, that looks like a great way to amplify spread of the disease.
0: Are you thinking right now that they should not hold Euro 2020 or the Olympics, or that they should potentially do it with no spectators?
3: You know, I think the empty stadium approach is is a good compromise, honestly, with these things, Um, and then then it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of how do you make sure the players are kept safe? Um, And, you know, that may involve quarantining teams within themselves um, and doing frequent screening of teams um, to make sure that there's no introduction of disease within the the team unit.
0: I do know in particular, the Olympics have the Olympic village where they have basically all of the athletes in one pretty small space which seems like that would be a concern
3: yeah i am concerned about that especially given what i've heard about sort of the i mean it's a good thing party atmosphere in the olympic village but at the same time you know in the middle of a an infectious disease outbreak that could be a big problem
0: now earlier this morning you sent me a text saying the next two weeks in the u.s are going to get bad what do you mean by that
3: well um we're About two weeks behind, if you look at sort of the curves of cases in Italy and the US, we're probably about two weeks behind them. They have more doctors per person, more hospital beds per person than we do here in the US. And so if we follow that same pattern, and there's really no reason to think otherwise right now, um, it's very likely we're going to see the same overwhelming number of patients presenting to healthcare systems. And that's going to be. Uh, dangerous to everybody
0: so what should ordinary americans be doing right now to help prevent the spread of coronavirus
3: well to the degree that you can work from home i, I realize not everybody can do that some people get paid by the hour uh you know people working in the gig economy people who work in the, in various service industries nannies Gardeners, etc. Um, you know that may not be an option um, if that is not something that's readily available. Talk to your employer, ask for what kind of accommodations can be made. You know, I had a um, conversation with our housekeeper yesterday. I said, "Look, if you're feeling sick, just stay home. We'll pay you anyway." Um, you know, so I think also we need to be proactive ourselves about offering that to people who may find themselves in that situation. I think in addition. Um, you know, people make fun of oh, all you can do is wash your hands. Well, actually, washing your hands really does work. And going back to how this is spread, droplet spread, um, it's it's the surfaces you're touching that really make a difference. And then you inoculate yourself when you touch your face or your mouth, etc. Um, there was a study published recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association looking at the hospital room of a patient who had coronavirus, and this was in Singapore, and they took air samples, they took swabs from all the different surfaces in the hospital room, and looked at where they could detect coronavirus. It was not in the air, but it was all over everything in the room. So handles, faucets, you know, surfaces, counters. And so that's really what we need to be worried about. So. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Um, hand sanitizer versus soap and water. If you have soap and water, great. But when we're on the go, you know, traveling um, from home to work or school or you know wherever it is, having hand sanitizer, you're in your backpack or your purse so that you can be using it and just keep using it over and over. You know, throughout the day, especially after you've touched anything in public. Um, So those things can really help. Please do not hoard masks. We are seeing shortages in hospitals, which means we can't take care of you. Whether it's coronavirus or not, um, we need those masks. And that's really, again, not gonna help you. It's only if you're standing within two meters or so of somebody and they're coughing um, on you or or something like that, that you're gonna be um, getting any protection from a mask. And remember, As doctors and nurses, we get very close to patients. You know, like when I'm listening to somebody's heart and lungs or, um, you know, uh, examining their abdomen or looking into their eyes, I'm much closer to somebody than you, as the average person is. So I think those are really important things. And then if you're somebody who has a chronic medical illness, Make sure you have refills of your medications um, so that, you know, that you don't run out when we're in the healthcare system, whether it's doctor's offices or hospitals, where we're dealing with a huge influx, you know, to be dealing with um, just routine refills on medications is also going to be a big challenge.
0: Um, One question I have for you is, and this comes up when you go to a place like Guinea for two months to do Ebola aid work or... When you might be treating someone for coronavirus any day now here in New York, or if you're dealing with potential uh, needle pricks mm-hmm. um, with HIV patients, are you ever freaked out about the possibility of of picking up one of these infectious diseases yourself?
3: I mean, it's certainly I certainly think about it, you know, and then what are you going to do? But at, at the same time, I don't think you can fixate on that and. The fact is because I know how these things are transmitted, I do know um, how to protect myself. And so I really just focus on, okay, I just need to be very rigorous about these things and that's the best I can do.
0: I will say this here, I am in awe of what you do, what you have done for 99% of the time. It gets basically no attention from anybody. And then when something like coronavirus comes around, uh, everyone in the world wants a piece of your time, including <laughs> me here. So thank you for taking a bit of time and I hope our listeners, uh, learn some things. I learned some things and thank you.
3: Yeah. And check out the, uh, epidemic podcast. You can find it at epidemic.fm with links to, uh, the podcasts on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And you can pretty much find us on any, uh, podcast platform.